0: Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr.
1: Sammy Steele. Hey, Monica. Hey, Sammy. Monica, today I want to talk to you about an area that I have been finding myself struggling with, which is my subjective exam. I have been noticing that there's some awkwardness, and I feel like you're the perfect person to help me untangle some of these things that are going wrong. I feel like it's such an overlooked part of our training. Often we're taught all of our objective measures and all of our treatments and all of these modalities that we have to apply to the patient once we know what their problem is. But sometimes we don't take that step back to go, how am I getting the information from the patient? How am I asking my questions? How am I interacting with them that sets the tone for the rest of their treatment? And I think that's where I've been getting hung up recently.
0: Well, Sammy, I sure hope I can help. To be honest, it's always a work in progress. I definitely understand what you mean with having awkward interactions. One thing I often do is ask a leading question. And that's a habit that I've been working to understand, to become more aware of, and to try to change. In pelvic health, we have so many things that we're trying to understand, right? Pea, poop, sex, menstrual history, obstetric history, the list goes on and on. And it's so easy, I think, to try to gather all the data that we actually forget the purpose of our exam which is to understand the person in front of us and to figure out how we can help them by knowing their story. So I wonder, what are you observing right now in your practice that you think is getting in the way?
1: I think you hit the nail on the head, which is the leading questions. I have been noticing that more and more. It's either leading questions or close-ended questions that I, I keep hearing slip out of my mouth before I can catch them and going, oh, there we go. That was another leading question. Oh, that was another closed-ended question. And I've been realizing how much it steers the conversation. Frequently, I'll say, oh, it's right in the front there, huh? So it's aching. And then they'll be like, well, I guess. And then I'll think, damn it, maybe it was burning. Maybe it was sharp pain. You know, not that that specific thing is the end-all be-all, but that was a piece of information that I kind of assumed what if they had a totally different adjective to describe what their pain felt like and I missed it? I keep hearing that over and over and over and I'm really trying to catch it before it comes out of my mouth, but I'm still struggling with that.
0: Yeah, so you're finding that you don't get the information as openly and Mm -hmm. it sounds like the issue is maybe the type of information that you get or the rapport that you get with this person.
1: I'm really hoping to get the most true information that there is for that person. I want to know their story, their experience, what's bringing them in. And if I keep plastering my own assumptions across that, I feel like I'm never going to get to the heart of it. That's the thing that bothers me the most is that I'm not understanding them in the way that I want to be when I ask those questions. Is there a certain type of client that this happens with? I don't think so. It's something I'm noticing even in my personal life. And I'm not sure where it comes from. But even today, when we first signed on, I asked you, oh, hey, Monica, how are you? you doing good this week, right? Mm. And maybe you're not doing good this week. And I do that with my patients frequently. Oh, how's it going? Is it going well? Is your hip feeling better? I kind of put it on them to disagree with me, which feels, I'm sure, not great to disagree with this person that's all sunshiny and happy. and you're trying to go, actually, no, I feel like shit this week. (laughs) You know, And I think that when I assume that they're feeling great, when I assume that their hip is feeling better or whatever, I'm taking the spotlight away from their true experience.
0: Yeah, definitely. And the fact that you're becoming aware of it, I think is the first step, because then you can choose to ask different questions. You can pause and reframe. Your next question could be something that is more open. And I think the art of this is asking open and specific questions, because when we ask random open questions, we actually don't get the information we want. And that's when I see people transition to closed leading questions. Let's say that you just ask somebody to do an exercise and you're like, how does that feel? And they're like, I don't know what information you're looking for. What do you want me to tell you about that? And especially in our history, like when we start off, I love to just ask, what brings you into pelvic PT today? What's going on? And let them talk for a while. While they're talking, I'm really trying to listen to a few things in the history, what they're saying to me, what they're not saying to me, and how they're saying it. Because if I can identify those three veins within our conversation, I think I can get a much more well-rounded picture of this person. I need to know what they've said so that I'm not asking repeated questions, which often happens when people are nervous. It's like, oh, wait, where is your pain? Or how many times a day do you pee? And they just told you that information a second ago. So I think that's an easy one. But I need to know what they said. I need to know what they haven't said. Sometimes people will leave out information, and it's my job to identify if that's something to ask about. Totally.
1: Like if someone's talking about pelvic pain, for example, or they're talking about having this experience of scar tissue after they deliver their baby or whatever, and you can kind of tell that they're dancing around the issue of sex, for example, and they don't really want to talk about it. That could be something that you get the sense that they're leaving something out. Exactly. I think that's a great example. Yeah, it's not always what you think it is. And I think that's why it's up to you to just confirm what it is that they're leaving out by asking directly about it later. But it is interesting to sit back and just listen and just be a fly on the wall in that kind of interaction. So you can go, they didn't bring up X, Y, or Z. That seems interesting you can just reflect on that and then go mental note I'm going to bring up sex later Mm -hmm. so I think that's I think that's a great reflection and then there's how they say it which is the third vein
0: I'm listening for the adjectives that they use the way that they're expressing themselves I'm observing this person to see are there a lot of nervous tics are they looking skittish are they maintaining eye contact with me And this helps me understand maybe how comfortable they are or how uncomfortable they are being there, which may or may not have anything to do with PT. Sometimes it's the nature of our work, and people will often open up the longer that we work together. I have one patient I've been seeing now for six visits, and we're on telehealth. But Sammy, this person does not look directly at the camera ever. She's always looking off to the right hand side, which To me, I'm like, hey, come on, let's take a look at each other. I like eye contact, so I find it a little weird. But some people are just like that, and it doesn't affect the quality of our work together, I think, to that extent. But we want to understand, is that who this person is, or do I need to spend more time on this subject? Some of that is trial and error. One thing that's also helped me when it comes to a subjective is starting to use motivational interviewing which I think is a work in progress for anyone who's doing it, thinking about it. It's not like you take a course and you just have it down pat. I think it's forever going to be a part of practice. And it's one of those things that you can't unsee once you see it done well and you see how it could go and the information that you gather and the rapport that you have with a person. So you and I are both familiar with motivational interviewing. We know that it's a way of understanding a person's experience and trying to help them change their behavior from a more intrinsic place rather than us telling them what to do. And it's very much in alignment with the way that we talk about our practice. In the context of motivational interviewing,
1: what do you think would help you in your history? I think one of the core tenets of motivational interviewing is those open-ended questions, going back to what you had said when you start off your subjective is, what brings you to pelvic floor PT today? I think that's a perfect question. Because I think oftentimes it's easy for me to go, oh, so I see your doctor referred to in for a rectocele. Can you tell me a little more about what's going on with that? I've already narrowed the conversation by a ton when I've led with that. And so I think it's just this idea that we're keeping in mind these open-ended questions to understand more about what truly is motivating this patient to seek care so that we can actually give them the care that they're looking for versus just like trying to treat impairments, right? I think we get mm-hmm. the, that whole treat the impairments drilled into us in PT school, but we don't necessarily treat every single impairment if a patient doesn't want to get it treated, right? I want to mm-hmm. treat the impairments that the patient wants to have treated because otherwise they're not going to be compliant. that gucky word that we hate. If we're trying to treat every single impairment, it's not a focused treatment. It's just you trying to react to what you're seeing in the objective and not truly listening to them. You need to have a sense
0: of priority. And that's another thing that a well done history will help you with is, Mm -hmm. okay, I know what this person wants to focus on and asking them flat out what is most important to you. I think assumptions are like the true killer of a great history. Assuming that what a person wants to work on, how you want to start there, because you know that it'll resolve quickly, like maybe urine leakage, and assuming that you know why a person does something. I think that's another common pitfall that I had. And it certainly still happens. But assuming, okay, so you take laxatives and it must be because you're constipated, but there are other reasons that people take laxatives, eating disorders. Sometimes they take it because it really helps them. Sometimes they take it because a parent sent it to them. One of my patients, her mom sent her senna tea from China, and she didn't know much about it. She was just taking it. So she didn't know that she was actually taking a laxative. She thought, oh, I'm taking a tea. So that's fine. And it might help me with my stomach issues. And if we're curious, then we can understand that. And we can get that background. And I think this saves us time in the long run. Like spending more time upfront talking can help you on the back end. As a newer pelvic PT, you're probably gonna spend a lot of time trying to talk because there's so many different questions for you to ask. And I would really urge you to focus your questions on what the person came in for first and then ask questions that might be relevant to that condition. And you can always bring back the other stuff in future visits. And I think we forget that. Like that usually ends up being my first tip to my residents is ask what you need to ask. Is it the most important thing that you cover bowels with this person? It depends. But someone with a primary condition of vaginismus, there's a lot more questions I want to know about sexual function than taking a 10-minute detour into a bowel history If they've not mentioned it at any point. Of course, it could be related, but I really want to understand what's been going on sexually, what they believe about their condition. And those are the questions that I don't think we're trained to ask. Why do you think the pain started? What do you think will make it better? What do you expect out of a treatment? These questions can save us so much energy where we don't have to go manufacturing answers and then trying to solve problems that we have made up for this person. They might have really simple solutions to some of these impairments, right? There might be a very simple reason for why they're not drinking as much water. Maybe they don't have their water bottle next to them during the day. And so they don't need a huge lecture on what they should or shouldn't (laughs) drink. They just need for someone to help them reflect. And I think that's ultimately part of a great history is understanding a person, staying curious, and asking them questions that help them put their story together. Like people don't really have a story from start to finish And in pelvic PT, I think we get to help them do that sometimes. We get to ask the question and help them figure out, yeah, what did change this pain and what did influence it? And I think sometimes it's even to this day so easy to get frustrated when a person doesn't know how to answer all the questions you're asking. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. And you're like, come on. Like, how am I supposed to work with you if we don't know anything? And the flip side of that is okay, they're probably going to leave this interaction and already start to think about these things. They don't need a lecture to do that. Totally just the interaction with you asking so many things is going to plant those seeds. I bet the next time you see them, they're going to start off with like, okay, since last time I paid attention and I realized I actually pee every two hours, or I realized that my pain isn't all that bad when I'm sitting. It's actually worse when I'm standing. And that is the beauty of our subjective too. Is like we're planting
1: seeds that we might not
0: harvest right away. So plant seeds that will help you.
1: Yeah. And that tells you that maybe somebody hasn't fully processed why their symptoms started in the first place. And it helps you understand where they're at in their stages of behavior change. When I get somebody who seems to have not a lot of reflection on why they're coming in and why this thing is happening to them, it makes me wonder, okay, what's this person's self-efficacy? What is their health literacy? What is their desire to change? I think that's also some valuable information, even though in the moment you're like, oh my God, just answer the question. I just asked you how many times you pee today day and you can't tell me. You know, it can be very frustrating when we feel like we have these time constraints. But I think if we can be grounded and centered ourselves, we can go, okay, this is information. This person can't answer this thing. That's interesting. It's an opportunity for you to say, hey, maybe we need to do a bladder diary maybe we turn this into an intervention at the end of the session today if that's the low-hanging fruit that we need to deal with. If we truly have no idea what the pattern of the symptoms are, this person has no idea what's going on, that's our first intervention is helping them see what's going on. Mm -hmm. And we are totally planting seeds. I've had so many people come back and say, I was thinking about how you asked me when this pain started and I didn't put it together at the time, but it was right at the time that my grandpa died, and I failed some big midterm, and I was really stressed at work, or whatever. You know, they're telling me the story about whatever else was going on in their life, and they're like, "Do you think that could have something to do with it?" Yes. They're <laughs> like, "Now I can talk about stress and pain." You know, it happens so much more than we think it will, and because we're so stressed in the moment about getting the information, getting those little nuggets of information. We can get impatient and it's good to step back and be like, I'm still doing something just by asking the question and letting them reflect.
0: And giving them enough time to reflect, sitting with it until they come up with an answer. I used to often reframe the question if they didn't answer me pretty quickly. And I think that was totally a new grad, like little bit of an anxious type of thing. and. Now I just sit there until they come up with something. If they don't understand the question, people will
1: ask it again. So I feel confident in just waiting. I definitely do that too. That reframing of the question, it totally comes from insecurity. I found that if I'm asking somebody about their goals for PT, for example, maybe they are like, what do you mean my goals? Because that's not something a healthcare provider typically asks, right? What are your goals for this doctor's appointment? we don't typically get asked about our goals, right? So then I I get a little nervous if they pause. Oh, well, you know, like, I just want to know so I can put some, you know, objective measures in place and give you the treatment that you're looking for. And I start to justify why I'm asking the question instead of just pausing to let them think about Mm -hmm. it. Because I'm thinking, they're going to think it's such a weird question, they're not going to know how to answer it. Mm -hmm. And it's just my anxiety coming out. And then it feels weird and disorganized and I'm interrupting. Yeah. I love how you hit on
0: earlier the efficiency part of a good history. you made the example of if a person doesn't know how often they pee, well, maybe low-hanging fruit and a way to build self-efficacy is avoiding log. That's another key staple of a great history is it really refines your examination first and foremost. And it will refine the intervention that you choose because you will already understand something about where this person is in terms of their understanding of their condition, what this person might value, and you'll know how to work with them, or at least you'll be curious about how to work with them to develop more of a collaborative plan instead of like, oh, hey, here's this thing that you need to do. I might understand, yeah, the reason you drink so much water is because you think it's actually good for you and you need to drink six liters of water a day. And I had a patient like that and it was like six liters, of course you're peeing once every hour and you're drinking it because you thought more is better. But her activity level doesn't require six liters of water to stay hydrated. Now that I understand what it's from and we talked about norms for her age and what would be helpful, she's like, all right, sure, I could do that. We don't have to talk about bladder retraining, which uh, <laughs> I may have done if I didn't understand what was going on here. And that's such a quick fix. <laughs> or I didn't ask specific enough question just to say, oh, I drink enough water. What's enough? What does hydrated mean? Mm-hmm. That's where I think our more
1: close-ended questions can come in. I kind of like to think about my questioning like a funnel, right? Like we're starting really broad mm-hmm. and I'm trying to get myself to ask questions like, tell me about your bowel movements. Let them talk for a little bit. And then if they start to tell you something like, oh, well, you know, I'm kind of constipated. And I'm really noticing that I have to strain. Then I might start asking questions like, okay, let's talk about how often do you have to strain and how long has this been going on for and what do your poops look like? Let's bring out the Bristol stool scale. But I I feel like if we start with, here's a chart, what does your poop look like? It doesn't make sense, right? If somebody just says, oh yeah, bowel movements are really easy for me, I've never had an issue. Okay, cool. You're here for your urinary incontinence. Clearly, the bowel movements are not the low hanging fruit here. I can still delve into them again, I can still go into it later but it's not a priority for today. Saves you so much time. I want to echo your sentiment from earlier, which is you're going to see them again. (laughs) Hopefully, right? (laughs) Like they're going to come back. You can put it in your plan and your soap note, ask about specifics on bowel movements. But if it's not the top priority for the eval, that's okay. Like you're going to see them again. I just can't emphasize enough. (laughs) it's helped me so much to just be like, I can ask him that next time. It's cool. And It just takes the pressure off so much easier. Yeah. That's been a huge thing for me. And then you get more time to talk with them,
0: to counsel them on all these other questions we mentioned twice now. What do you know about this condition? It'll free up really valuable time. And I like to ask myself, what would asking this help me with? Does my question have a purpose? What would I do with the information that I get from that question? because my brain is like a thousand miles a minute. Oh, I'm curious about this, I'm curious about that. And if I don't have a reason for asking a question, then I probably don't need to ask it. If I'm not gonna do anything with the information that I gather from it, it's probably okay to leave it out. And sometimes we get stressed because we ask questions that we don't know how to interpret and then we get data and it's like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what to do with this piece of information. And if that's the case, we probably need to go back on our end and, and look something up or read more about some type of subject. But I would definitely stay focused. It's confusing to say broad and open, but then also focused. We always have to remember your intention to understand their chief concerns What has been going on with those chief concerns? What has developed? What they believe will help? What they believe harms them? Where they got these beliefs from? What they understand about their presenting condition? What they expect out of a treatment? That's really going to give you your blueprint. And our next metaphor is once you have your blueprint, you know what you're building. If we have the blueprint, we can tailor our exam. To be specific to this person, to reproduce their chief complaint if it's pain, to assess what's going on with their condition from our understanding, and then to design a treatment plan that will get them towards that end goal rather than reaching for everything
1: along the way. I keep thinking of this example of this patient that I had. This patient came in, she's postpartum, she has urinary incontinence with running has back pain, has diastasis. So she's talking about all this stuff at eval and I I keep hearing these things. Oh, I can help with that. I can help with that. I can help with that. Great. And so I gather all this information, right? I gather all this information about the back pain, about the diastasis, about the leakage. And then what we forget is, what does the patient want to work on? What is their priority? What do they care about most? And once I realized that that was happening, it was a conversation of, hey, we've been working on a lot of these different things all together. Is there one that you feel like is a higher priority to you? And then you start getting, oh, well, you know, the leakage is the thing that bothers me the most. Back pain just kind of comes and goes. It's not a big deal. Or the diastasis doesn't really bother me. Then we know what we're working on. So much more specific, we can tailor our interventions to focus on the urinary incontinence. And that's going to generate a lot more patient satisfaction and engagement in your care than trying to do all the things because you can theoretically.
0: Right, right. And trying to convince people that they have to treat all the things is also another energy drain. I think there Mm -hmm. are conditions that are totally related. And when we see that strong of a link, we can make that suggestion to this person, yet we can't force them to do anything. When we try to drag them up the mountain and help them work on their constipation, and they're not invested in it, It's a drain for us. It's a drain for them. It could be a half hearted effort on their part, which is a bit demoralizing as their PT, a bit frustrating even. So, getting clear on what's important to them and focusing on that. I've had patients that I have discharged who might still have some type of pelvic floor dysfunction. And our final conversation is hey, I want you to know that what you've described still could be treated. And hopefully I've shared this along the way with them. It's not the first time. But yeah, your constipation is something that pelvic PT might be able to help with. If you're interested in that in the future, come on back. Plant the seed and wait for them to come back, whether it's with you or another pelvic PT, when they feel like they're ready for it, when they have the bandwidth to treat that thing. It's okay to discharge people with some level of Impairment, none of them have died from the conditions that they're coming in for, right? Hopefully, you covered your red flags. We didn't get into those, but those are important in the subjective. Most people aren't going to die because of the conditions they're coming in for. They're going to suffer, they're going to struggle, but they're going to live. We have to be okay with letting them choose their own adventure, so to speak, and not try to scare people. I think that's my other pet peeve is you have to work on this diastasis or else it will be so terrible for you. Make sure the claims are evidence-based, first off. Mm-hmm. And second off, why put that kind of seed in there? No Nocebo will scare people a lot and will usually lead to them avoiding activities that might otherwise have a lot of benefit. So also being careful that we're not trying to
1: save everybody at the expense of the people that we're actually trying to help. Yeah. And it's so much more satisfying for the both of you. It's satisfying for you as the PT because you know what you're doing. You feel confident in the thing that you're working on. You've got a streamlined approach and you're not rushing around trying to treat 10 different body parts. And then the client feels so much better because they're getting their concern addressed. They're getting what they came for. It's as simple as that. And so I think it's just better for everybody if you focus on the thing they want to focus on. Like you say, maybe they're not ready to deal with one of those things. They don't have the bandwidth to deal with that constipation right now. And yeah, we know constipation's not great and we want to treat it, but they're not going to engage in the treatment anyway if they're not motivated to. So why bang your head against the wall?
0: Yeah, it's a really fine line. I've walked both sides of it and sometimes I walk it well and other times I'm like, oh,
1: you know, I I don't want to downplay
0: it and act like it doesn't matter, especially if it matters to their
1: other condition. And at
0: the same time, I don't want to scare them.
1: Well, I think it's worth educating them on, did you know that constipation can make your leakage worse? And if they go, oh, no, I didn't. And then you've kind of opened up that conversation, then all of a sudden you got the buy-in because now it's relevant to what they're coming in for instead of you just going, well, we also need to treat the constipation or you're not going to get better. Mm -hmm. It's a different conversation. Definitely. Back to how do we help people change instead
0: of how do we change people?
1: Yep. The other thing I think would be helpful to talk about, I know something that's helped me a lot in the past is talking about setting goals with patients. So we're talking a lot about treating what they're coming in for how do we translate that into PT language? And how do we make that something that is a measurable and functional goal, which is what we all learn in school. And Monica, one of the things that we had worked together on during the residency is asking what their goals are. Monica, what are your goals for physical therapy? And then following that up with, okay, you want to be able to run a mile without leaking. How would you know that you're getting better? That question that is so important and it's something that I brought into my evals is how will you know you're getting better? Mm -hmm. And that is an amazing question because it gets the patient to reflect on what exactly is it that I want to improve? And they're basically writing their goals for
0: you. (laughs) You Right. Especially when the person gives you a vague goal, like I want to be stronger and I'd be like, okay, got it. And then when I went to write my actual PT goals, I was like, what does that mean? Do I assign them a strength grade? And I really love goals where the person has written the goals for me. I know I've done a great job where my goal setting is just writing in the number of weeks and copying from the subjective the two or three (laughs) things that they said they wanted. That's where I'm like, yes, we got it. We know what we're doing here. So I love fine tuning that because. It it also gives you more information. Do they really want to be stronger or do they think that strength is a prerequisite to not leaking, to picking their child up without pain, to something else? And that's usually the case where they give you something vague is they think that they have to achieve that first. And it's also Mm -hmm. empowering. Sometimes I don't debunk it right then and there. But other times, it's a conversation as well of like, you don't have to do that in order to start moving more. Moving more will help you become stronger and whatever the conversation might be. So that conversation, when done well,
1: leads to really measurable, easy to write out goals. Totally. Instead of, I want to feel back to normal. It's, I want to be able to cough or sneeze without leaking. These goals that patients will write for themselves when you ask them this question, they're so specific that you know exactly what you're working on and you go, oh, cool. Okay, we can do that. Or if they're wanting something that's unrealistic, then that's a different conversation because then you kind of understanding, okay, maybe that's something I can't do for you. Or maybe that's something that we also need to bring another member of of the team on for. It helps you understand their motivation in, in a different way. So I really liked that question. I feel like that was a game changer when you introduced that to me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was born out of the same struggle, Sammy. So I definitely hear you there. The final thing I would bring up about the subjective is using reflective statements for your patients and Mm. making sure that every now and again, you are summarizing what they tell you. Usually after I ask them what they came in for, I'll just listen as they tell me what's going on and I'm writing my own notes down. And especially if they've talked for a couple minutes, when they stop, I say, okay, I'm going to try to repeat that back to you. And sometimes I do this later on once I've gathered more of the story of when this condition started and I get the specifics. At some point, however, wherever that might naturally fall, I want to make sure that I understand what they're telling me and offer them the space for correction because it's their story. And I want to know that I've captured it in the most true and meaningful way. Doing this, I think, builds rapport, too. It shows that you're listening. Mm -hmm. It's different than, okay, yeah. So how many times do you pee? But saying, okay, so you had a a traumatic birth, and I try to use their language to show them that I've been listening. If someone describes that they've had a traumatic birth, and such and such happened from it, and their problem started five weeks later, I want to capture that in my reflection
1: statement. Yeah, it shows that you're listening. And then if you summarize it well, you can ask, did I understand that correctly? You can ask them, was that right? And sometimes the patients will tell you, no, actually, it's more like this. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, no, no, it actually happened when this happened. And I just had mentioned that because I thought it might be sort of related. But I think it was mainly caused from the time I had pelvic surgery, not from my birth. Or so, You know what I mean? They'll correct you if you're asking, did I get that right? Did I summarize that okay? Mm-hmm. So it's an opportunity for a check-in to make sure that you aren't assuming anything about them and about their story.
0: Assumptions kill a great history. And they totally get in the way of our rapport. That would be the number one tip. If I could give like a top five, I think number one would be make no assumptions. And number two would be to listen more than you talk, like the 70 30 rule. Mm -hmm. They should be talking 70% of the time. You're talking 30% of the time because they know their body better than you ever would. Number three would be open and specific. Number four would be the funnel. I love your analogy of bringing it down to the close-ended questions at the end when we need them. And I'm not sure what number
1: five would be. So I guess I have a top four. (laughs) I like it. I mean, that pretty much summarizes a lot of the struggles that I have with the subjectives. I just think it's so fascinating how much we guide the conversation and what impacts that can have in your understanding of somebody.
0: And you could become more conscious as you do it. Yep. Stay conscious, everyone. Till next time.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.